Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome on this Sunday morning, a beautiful, gorgeous Sunday morning. Welcome to all those who are here in this room and those of you who are joining us online. It's great to be here on a Sunday morning. Uh, For me, I've been reading Kindle for the last few years. I actually haven't read from a physical book in in a while, but most of my family members prefer physical books, so... Maybe I'll do a throwback Sunday and <laughs> pick up a physical book later today. Um, hey, today we are starting a new series. It's called In the Word. And this is a series that kind of follows right on the heels of what we did last month. So over the last two months, actually, we've been looking at spiritual recovery and basically moving into practices and rhythms and prayers that help us to regain a sense of life. So many of us over this pandemic and over the last couple of years have felt worn down, tired, even on the edge of burnout. And so we've been looking at ways in which we can help um, dive more deeply into the spiritual rhythms that Jesus taught in order to experience what he says are the life-giving waters that he promised. Now, through this series, we neglected one thing, and we did it on purpose. We didn't talk about the Word of God as a spiritual renewal practice. And that's because we knew we could do several weeks on it because it's such a rich topic. And so we're doing this all for the month of November. We're going to be spending time looking at how we can dive more deeply into the Word in order to experience renewal of spiritual life. Now, this past week, I was on in board meetings all week long, and I heard reports from um, fellow covenant ministers uh, all across the nation, from Alaska to Florida, from Canada to, um, you know, Arizona, California, across the nation, and almost every single report, there was a common theme that was expressed for covenanters and especially for chaplains and ministers, everyone is feeling a collective weariness, a spiritual tiredness. And that goes along with grief and other losses that they've handled. And it's been a difficult season for everyone. So if you're in that kind of a, a mode, don't feel bad. You're not alone. But what we'll scripture as that way? Now, For this first message, we're going to be taking a look at a story from the book of Acts. And then out of that story, we're going to draw two conclusions. We're going to look at two truths about why Scripture can renew our hearts and how that can work for us. So, in the book of Acts, there's a story. There's a story about a, a spiritual seeker. He's from a distant land, and he comes to Jerusalem in order to try and connect with God. Along the way, he's kind of stumped. He can't figure something out. And so because of this situation that he's in, God sends to him a divine encounter with the Apostle Philip, one of Jesus' 12 followers. So Philip is on the road, and basically the Holy Spirit whispers to him, as only God can do, and this story is about what happened to the two of them. Let's read. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury 
of the Kandig, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, this man was on what you might call a spiritual pilgrimage. He was making a journey to a distant land because somehow he heard that God was alive in that place. And so he wanted to know more. He had questions. He wanted to worship and connect with God himself. And so this is what he did. He traveled all the way to, whoops, <laughs> he traveled all the way to, uh, to Jerusalem from Ethiopia. And the Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I don't know, I just typed this into uh, Google Maps this week to try and get a gauge of how far this guy had to travel on his spiritual pilgrimage. It's a long way, folks. It's 2,500 miles. And this guy came by chariot. It's not like he just booked a ticket and flew out to Jerusalem. No, he had to travel for weeks on end, maybe months, to get to where he was going in order to try and connect. So he was spiritually hungry. And when he was in Jerusalem, he somehow got a hold of the book of Isaiah. Now, even back then, this was a really old book. For him, it was a 700-year-old book. For us, it's close to like a 3,000-year-old book. But somehow in reading it, it captured his imagination. And this is one of the things that Scripture can do. It captures our imagination. It can find itself weaving through our thoughts to the point where we're changed, where we're stuck. Um, have you ever had that experience with Scripture yourself? Where it's grabbed your attention? Or you've been made curious about something? If you know what I'm talking about, you've really just joined thousands and maybe millions of people throughout history who have read the Bible and somehow come away just curious and perplexed. Like, what does this mean, the story of a good Samaritan or this story about a prodigal son? Uh, if some of these stories have ever impacted you in those ways or if some of the imagery around prayer like the Psalms gives us about God being our shepherd or being a Lord that we can seek or, or dwelling in his house, I've had so many of those occasions, and I know some of you have as well. If you've been like that, we, we're going to talk about why that is the case, why that's so. Let's read on in the story. So this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation... He was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth, and the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip 
began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. We just celebrated something like that last week. It was awesome. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So this is the big question. Why does God's word have this impact on our souls? And why did it have this impact on this Ethiopian eunuch? He was reading it, and a 700-year-old book somehow captured his imagination. He was going home to Ethiopia, riding in his chariot. He was reading this aloud, which meant he was probably a pretty brilliant man to be able to read in a different language. He was from Ethiopia. But it, more than just the intellectual study of that passage, he was made curious. Who in the world is this prophet talking about? And why does God's word have this impact on our souls? We're given a clue to that in the New Testament. In the book of Timothy, Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy, and explains to him in a very difficult setting where he's the young pastor of a church that is filled with all kinds of different spiritual influences, some, some very negative. He wanted him to be sure he knew the power that was at his hand. And he reminds him, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love this passage. And this phrase here, that scripture is God-breathed, should cause us to stop and pause for just a moment. You know, when I was, uh, when I first became a Christian, I remember hearing a, uh, a sermon on this passage and I remember the preacher saying, pick out a pencil and just circle that word, God breathed. It was like the first time I marked in my Bible, so it really left an impression. I can do that? I can write in my Bible? You know, so we don't really do that these days with electronic Bibles, but you might want to highlight that. But the idea of something being God breathed is very significant in Scripture. You see, in Genesis, God takes dirt. He forms and fashions it into a shape, a human shape. And then he breathes into this dirt. And it comes to life. This is human life. Our bodies are made of matter, dust, water. And so are things like this table or this chair that I'm sitting on. But what separates us from this inanimate object is the fact that God has breathed his life 
into you and into me. And we have this life so that I dream, I feel, I think, I have a consciousness. I feel bad when bad things happen. I rejoice over good things. There is a significant degree of difference between an inanimate object like this and the life that we carry around within us. It is the breath of God. And significantly, Scripture is also described in the same way. It is God-breathed, meaning it's alive. It's a living document. It's not just words and punctuations. It's not just sentences. It has the power within it to breathe life into your soul. This is the experience of people over thousands of years as they encountered stories, as they've looked at parables, and they've realized that this Jesus, what he's saying, boy, it is really meaningful. There is something here that I need to pay attention to. Scripture is alive. So, um, we're part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, it's our denomination. And the history of the Covenant Church is really fascinating. Back in the late 1800s in Europe, in Sweden, there were these people who were just learning how to read. Literacy was becoming a thing. So they were learning to read documents all for themselves. And they began to pick up the Bible for themselves. And they began to discover Scripture for themselves outside of the state-sponsored church, which gave them the state-sponsored sermons. They began to read for themselves and they discovered this God is alive. And people became Christians through it. They began to plant churches. They began to start ministries of mercy and compassion and justice. They began caring for widows and orphans. And these revivals started breaking out. This is the very Genesis beginning of the Covenant Church. And these were these <laughs> underground small groups. They called them conventicles. They were just not allowed to do this because the state didn't allow it. It was seen as subversive. But they did it because they were encountering God. They would have weekend retreats in these barn houses where hundreds of people would gather and just read scripture for the whole weekend. This is the beginning of the covenant church. And this phrase came about, it's the first affirmation of our denomination. The first affirmation is this, we affirm the centrality of the word of God. And I love that phrase, we affirm the centrality of the word of God. It's centered. You see, a person who is a covenanter is someone who follows Jesus and understands that the word has to be central to the way we think, we live, how we determine our ministries, how we run our churches, how we do all kinds of things in life. The word is central. To bring this home a little bit more, Years ago, back when I was a college freshman, um, a long time ago, I, I, I had a, 
I basically, when I was a freshman, I, I lived in a dorm with two other guys, and it was a kind of a cramped situation. I often tell my daughter, Emmy, who's just gone to Baylor, that she is so blessed to have her own room. She doesn't know how good she has it. Uh, but I was in this cramped one-room thing with two other guys, with Peter and Mike. Now, um, Peter and I uh, were Christians, and uh, we became really good friends. Mike uh, joined us a little bit later. We had a lot in common, but he didn't have the same faith background as us. And Mike had a lot of commonality. We, Mike and I had a lot of commonality. We both were Asian-American. We both came from Southern California. He was Korean-American. I was Chinese-American. Um, we were both engineering majors, and we just we had a good time talking about all kinds of stuff, about music, Def Leppard. I don't <laughs> I don't know. We just both really loved Def Leppard. Uh, and so that, that was our commonality. <laughs> but he really didn't get the whole church thing. And I would sometimes talk to him about spirituality because God was a huge thing in my life. It was like a huge part of my life. I shouldn't say thing. God was central to my life. And I I spent my weekends going to church and then going to university and leading Bible studies, doing all kinds of things. And once in a while, I'd have these conversations with Mike, but he, he was super private about his spiritual life. He didn't really want to talk about it too much. Well, after freshman year, and we kind of went our separate ways, um, and, you know, life kind of diverged. I kind of lost track of Mike. But a few years later, I bumped into him on campus, and he looked really different. He saw me from a distance, and he wanted to come over to me. He was really excited, and he wanted to talk, which was already very different for a pretty quiet, introverted person. And he was like, Ted, you won't believe what happened. I was all ears. He basically said, last semester, I had to take this class. It was an elective, so I took, I took Bible as literature. And this is Berkeley, okay? This is like non-spiritual. This is pretty anti-God campus, you know? Most students there, you know, were really anti-religion, anti-God. Mike took a literacy, Bible as literature class at Berkeley, and he said every night I had to spend like two or three hours reading the Bible for homework over and over and over again. And then I got to the Gospels, and then I got to Jesus. Oh. Man. And, mm. Changed him. He started going to church. He became a Christian. His life completely changed around. He was just full of so much joy. Friends, this is why it means so much to me.
funny because um, sometimes I get so happy I, I cry and it looks like I'm really sad but <laughs> but it's just because it means a whole lot to me and um, this is why I do what I do I want to throw this question out to you what has been your experience like being in the word have you experienced this life and goodness from the Spirit of God through the Word? And if it hasn't been the case for you because maybe you've gotten a little, you know, used to it or maybe you've been out of it for a little while or maybe you've been worn down by things, maybe this is the season for you to re-enter and find new life in the Word of God. Maybe this is the season for you to rediscover what God has for you. It's a life-giving word. Okay, I hope this first point is clear. The reason why it has this power over our lives is because it's God-breathed. Scripture is not just empty words. It's living. It's active. And we have the gift of God's word. All right. The next point is how can God's word have this impact on our souls? I mean, how does it work? This is one way I think that it works, why it makes such an impact on us. So let me rewind to this passage in Acts and talk about Philip's encounter with the youth group in need. Philip began with that very passage of Scripture in Isaiah, and he told him the good news about Jesus. Scripture can lead us to Jesus, the Savior. This is the life-giving power of the Word of God. It has the power to lead us to Jesus, the Savior. Now, let me kind of explain this a little bit more. So, we all have our own narrative, our own story, um, and there are meaning, there's meaning that we make of life based upon our own narrative, right? This is how human beings function. So, um, when I, Amy and I have been married over 25 years, we just celebrated that this past summer, uh, I got married at 25, um, and I came to our relationship with my own history and my own background. And one of the things that you might not guess now, because we get along quite well, but in our first couple years of marriage, boy, we really, we really had it out a lot. We, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of late night loud conversations um, <laughs> that the neighbors probably didn't appreciate. Um, we were just very passionate <laughs> about, our, about our stories. Um, and so uh, one of the things I realized about myself in my mid-20s was that, I, you see, I grew up in a divorced household. Mom and dad split up when I was in elementary school, and they had a lot of conflicts. And one of the things I experienced a lot in life was tons of conflict. And for whatever reason, I always saw it as my thing to make peace. That was my role. I was in between mom and dad to make peace, to help interpret, to try and soften words that were said or to reinterpret, to help them get along when things were going really badly. Um, I also came to the conclusion that conflict in relationships is awful because it always ends in people splitting up. And so when we began arguing, 
my fear was that that was the same thing going to happen to me in my 20s. Now, Amy came from a very different family. I mean, conflicts were, were there too, but didn't mean you were going to separate. You just argued, and that was it. It was a, a conflict was a conflict, you know? But for me, till 2 in the morning, I'm like, we got to figure this thing out. And she's like, oh, no, we don't. <laughs> so I got to get up for work in about four hours, <laughs> you know? And I learned over time that, you know, it didn't have to have that immediate resolution all the time, especially not at 2 in the morning when you can't think straight. So I bring this to our attention because you and I all have our narratives with God and with Scripture. And when we come to the Bible, some of us carry our own sense of baggage, could you say? Or our own misconceptions, or maybe our own biases about what it is, or how it's been used maybe against us. And so it becomes very difficult for certain people to really get deeply into Scripture to experience life. So there's this book by a guy named Chris Webb, who used to be with Renovare, um, and he writes some, some really interesting questions. He's, a, he's asking these questions in his book. Why do some people encounter Scripture and feel like a ton of shame and condemnation? Why do some people experience trouble in the world and they want to run away from God? And on the other hand, why do other people, when they experience trouble, run to God? And he says... It's because of our own narratives. And we're going we're gonna to explore this a little bit more next week, but I just want to give a little bit of a heads up about this whole thing that we're going to explore about how it can be very life-giving. There is a narrative that we talk about here at Access. It's part of our theological makeup. It's really important for us to understand this because this helps us to frame Scripture in the right way. It's the four-part narrative of Scripture. Now, a lot of churches over the last 50, 100 years have moved to a two-part narrative of fall and redemption. You're a sinner, you need to be saved, end of story, right? That's the gospel, that's what you come to church to find out about. But the narrative of scripture is actually a little longer than that. It starts with God breathing life into dust. And what does he say about this humanity? He calls it good, very good. We human beings have a goodness about us that comes from our maker, from our creator, from the one who's given us breath. And so our actions in this world have the potential for goodness and righteousness. We were given the job to take care of this creation. Then we move to chapter two. Early in our story, we fell, fell into sin, we rebelled against God. And this fall from God was called sin. And sin is more than just a moral breakup with God, like we broke a few rules, uh, we need to get a slap on hand. No, it, it actually changed us. It corrupted us from the inside out so that our souls are no longer the way they, they function, no longer the way that God at first intended. So instead of love, we tend to hate or we pervert love into lust. Instead of Living generously, we're selfish, we're self-centered, we're, we're full of pride. So instead of all the things that God intended, we moved into this new fallen state. So God launched the plan of redemption. 
And in this plan of redemption, God called men and women to himself to try to live in a new way. He, he gave us commandments and covenants that would ultimately all point to Jesus. That's why the book of Isaiah can point to Jesus, because it, in the chapter called Redemption, there's this special something called the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus is God's Savior. He's the one who died on our behalf to bring us life. And this new covenant that says no matter how messed up we've been, no matter how many failures we've experienced, no matter how far we walk away from God, there is an opportunity to find new life again. If you believe in Jesus, you can come to Jesus, the Savior, who will forgive you and give you new life. And the last and final chapter is restoration. God's not through with our fallen world. He is moving it toward redemption. He is saving you and me for a purpose. And there is a glorious future in which we will experience the restoration of all things. That's what we celebrate here with the bread and the cup. We'll do that in just a second. But I want us to take time this morning to talk about two application points. Hold on to this. We're going to go back to it next week talk more about it. So I want to end today with some practical things to help you get into the Word of God, into this narrative and into these words reading. And especially for those of you who maybe maybe it's been a while since you've read Scripture or maybe it's been a while since you've had an encounter with God in Scripture. So there's this app called the YouVersion app. How many people already have it? Just, okay, almost, all right, the majority. So it actually came out of a covenant church called Life Church. So that's kind of cool because the Word of God is central, right? That's our affirmation. And they just kind of lived into that. It's really, really cool. They're giving this away for free. Um, I signed up for two reading plans on there. And in your inbox, you will find a link to it later. If you haven't done one before, click on it. Up to 150 people can join the reading plan at a time. You can join me. I'll be on there. I'll be trying to do this. I already have my own reading plan, so this will be a little extra for me. But hopefully these will give you an idea of how to get into Scripture. If you're in a Bible reading plan already, like read a Bible in a year, I know it's November, and you're getting close to the finish line, and for someone to introduce this to you, it's going to feel like, what? You know, because you're already like, I'm almost done. No, don't, you don't need to do this. This is just to help you get started. Do what you're already doing if you're fully into it. Don't worry about that. Another thing that we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the elements of communion today. And this will take us back to the gospel, back to Jesus, back to the heart of where we find life. For those of you who may be here and hearing of the gospel for the first time, or maybe you're feeling some of that nudge in your own heart, and you want to say yes and believe and follow after God, make this act coming up and taking the bread and the cup your first yes to Jesus in faith, saying, I believe, forgive me for my sins, I want a, I want a new life. 
I invite you to come to that. And for those of you who've walked with God for many years, let this moment be exactly what it was always meant to be, a sacrament of grace. God is inviting you to remember once again. You are not saved by your own works, by your own good deeds. Our brokenness, our sinfulness, our failures, our mistakes are not enough to check us out of the goodness of God. They are, in fact, where we meet with God and experience his most life-giving power. So come and receive at the invitation of God. Let's read this together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So take your time, come up when you're ready. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And this is his body. Come receive and know that you are welcome at the table of God. So when he took this cup which represents the new covenant. I invite you to come up and take from the elements and take this time to pray.
Hey, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Thank you. Thank you. For the grace that's given to us that we are reminded of by this bread and by this cup. And Lord, we pray that as we go from this place, you would continue to speak life into our weary bodies, into our weary souls. Through your word that you've given us, speak life into us. And may we be a living testimony of your life-giving, saving power. And we pray this in Jesus' name.